Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Laura Jost, Vice President of Content for the American Journal of Managed Care, and today we're bringing you part two of the two-part podcast series on health equity in the treatment of psoriasis. Back in December, we hosted a panel discussion focused on health inequities in the treatment of psoriasis across all skin phototypes. As a follow-up to the series, we would love to present a conversation between our two guests. Dr. Ryan Humschild, Director of Pharmacy Services at Emory Healthcare and Winship Cancer Institute, and Dr. Brian Buckley, Director of Health Equity Initiatives at the National Committee for Quality Assurance. They will further discuss how providers can address disparities in care, specifically with race, cultural, and ethnic backgrounds in mind. I want to shift a little bit in the conversation to more of treatments and sequencing, because I think one of the things is sometimes we develop treatment sequencing and we apply it to everybody. And we say, hey, we saw this in the literature and everyone needs to go from A to B to C to D. But I think as we become more inclusive and we start thinking about unique uh, characteristics of some patient populations, sometimes it might be best to go directly to you know, treatment C or B right away to give a certain patient population the best benefit where others, it may not make as much sense. And I think you know, that's something that we're getting around to is how do we start to you think uniquely within our treatment pathways and not just a one size fits all approach. And so my question to you is building upon that thought process is how should race and ethnic considerations be incorporated into treatment sequencing? What tools could potentially help educate providers on how to include these considerations into their unique practices? Yeah, um, one, this is an area that I don't have a good perfect answer, but I have, I guess, a framework of an answer that I'll probably provide here. Um, so I think there's, and then these are in no particular order, but I think there are certain aspects of really this key thing that I mentioned earlier around shared decision-making as we're thinking about how do we think about this sequence. One race we should all acknowledge is its own social construct in some degree. But to go further there, we do know certain demographics do have genetic variations that do have some impact onto their health. So I think that is one area to kind of consider in the equation of things. I think another thing to consider is definitely cultural beliefs and practices and how that fits into um, the healthcare ecosystem as a whole. Um, and knowing that race does come with this idea of a cultural background and belief practice that is important as you're navigating what might be the best diagnosis for someone. But then even more important as we're thinking about person-centered care, I mentioned um, demographics and place and specifically place have an important part in how we think about health. And so as we're thinking about socioeconomic factors around where do they live, what resources do they have, are they able to afford it? Because it's one thing that if you, yeah, you might go straight from A to B when it comes to this expensive treatment, but if that person can't afford it, you're giving them false hope. And so I think there is a sense of understanding, and actually one of the things that I'm teaching at Georgetown, even with the med students, is understanding the finance, the finances of healthcare, because you should also be a good steward of understanding, okay, what can this insurance cover? And that is part of your decision-making process. Um, and then where can you advocate for your patient even further to get additional services if you know that there are limitations based off of their financial situation? Um, and then once again, I'm going to end with it because it's going to be a sandwich approach is the shared decision making side of things. 
Um, there's the sequence that the literature says, but then there's also the idea of the patient might also have a lot of ideas that might help be a factor in that sequencing um, for how they need to best um, receive that information, but then also what are their best options. So I know it's an answer and non-answer, but I well, think that framework helps. <laughs> I, I love the framework and, and we're going to build upon this a little bit further because I think you're doing a great job. And, you know, maybe just to infuse some of my background as well, you know, when we make treatment decisions, are we using the social determinants of health wheel? If we have a patient that has high transportation vulnerability due to their zip code, I mean, they could live six miles away or 300 miles away and they could have equal um, transportation vulnerability. And how are we thinking about that? Because if we go ahead to your point and create an infusion for a patient that's not gonna be able to travel in weekly or monthly to receive that infusion where we could have something that could be at home or self-injectable, how do we think about that? How do we think about financial toxicity and their ability to afford medications and actually reach a proportion of days cover that shows good adherence? And I really like, because you hit on those key considerations. And so, Maybe just to build upon it again, how can we ensure providers include ethnic and racial considerations when developing treatment plans? And do you feel like we have the right tools right now for people to develop this? Is this an area of opportunity that you see providers having more, as you said, patient-specific selection criteria through shared decision-making instead of just a one-size-fits-all approach based on cost or you know, proven data from a clinical trial? Yeah, so I guess when it comes to the tools, I think there are quite a lot of tools that provide some framework, um, specifically when we're talking about skin skin um, diseases. Um, one, a lot of this research also lives in the diagnostic safety because it is very hard to do dermatology as a whole. Um, it is, can sometimes, uh, um, there was some past work that I did where you just saw the complexity of it. Um, but not just from the complexity of it, but also the financial considerations of it. So a couple of tools that I want to kind of mention that might be helpful. Um, one is I'm going to do a plug for ARC because ARC has done actually quite a lot of research. Um, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality for folks that were wondering what ARC stood for. Um, they have a whole entire page around diagnostic safety and really how to think about it from an intentional perspective. There's a couple of tools that um, can be utilized. First, there's the ARC, which stands for the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, a government agency. They have a whole entire page dedicated to diagnostic safety. The next is organizations like SIDM, which literally are a whole entire trade group focused on diagnostic safety. They have fellowships and they actually are growing um, a lot of their um, um, physician fellowship programs for providers that are looking to learn and, and to some degree grow in a certain area around diagnostic safety, because this is where it has a really good intersection with skin disease. But then I think from a more global framework perspective, um, for folks that aren't familiar, Robert Johnson Foundation has actually funded quite a lot of things I think conceptually are, can be applied to nearly anybody in any profession um, called Raising the Bar. And Raising the Bar literally talks about five principles that you should really be thinking about as this whole topic is talking about health equity is one, making sure that you as a provider see that does your organization that you work for, does it have a mission to addressing inequities in the community? Many folks don't actually have that mission. And if it's not part of the mission, not part of the strategic plan, there's no resources to actually making it happen. The second is really thinking about equity and the process of actually doing equity work thinking about what investments are actually being made to specifically focus on equity-centered work. 
The third is about community, and we've touched on it a little bit before. How do we engage with communities in a more, um, more, a more intentional way, not just doing something for them, but doing something with them, that they're part of the co-design and co-creation process. Um, the next is, which are the two, the last two are the two hardest ones, trust and power. Often when it comes to trust, we talked a little bit about being trustworthy, but the one I'll focus on the most is power here. Healthcare has a lot of power in many ways. And so, and providers have a lot of power in society. And so how do we actually share power? And that gets back to that shared decision-making of really being able to build better relationships, not just with patients, their families, and the communities that they live in. And so that is, I think, an area that definitely are some tools. And actually, the Raising the Bar actually has a whole entire um, sub-bullet for providers. What are things that they can specifically do? What are things that payers can do? What are things that community advocates can do? And so I think it's a good framework for folks to look into. Because once again, I'll even be the first to say, I don't have all the answers. None of us have all the answers. And so that's where it's important back to that 4P framework, making sure that we get all those perspectives um, to really build a sense of cultural humility and deeper inquiry that's needed. Wow, really well said. And, and the different perspectives, I mean, we function through a shared decision-making framework as well. And we really try to take in a variety of different thoughts and even getting the patient's opinion, right? Even as you're formulating treatments, is there a patient family advisor that can give you input when you're developing treatments or even new clinic locations? And I think you hit on a lot of that. And, you know, we talked about how we can further individualize treatment for patients from the provider's perspective. But Dr. Buckley, I know you also have payer exposure in your work history, and I know you do a lot with payers. So, you know, one of my thoughts is if we can pivot towards the payer perspective, how can payers support and encourage more individualized treatment? And are things that they're doing evaluating, you know, dollars and, and they're evaluating total cost of care, but how do they start to have more of an inclusive thought process when developing these treatment coverage determinations? Yeah, so I think one of the things that we, we talked on in the very earliest was health equity accreditation. And so even as, and I would say this is more broad, not just out of the accreditation, but how do we start collecting this data? So traditionally health plans have kind of collected this data here and there, but not really necessarily use the full robustness of the data to really actually think about where are those intersectionalities, but then also where do disparities lie and being able to partner with healthcare delivery systems and practices to being like, okay, this is an area that I'm seeing in your, your community. What are you doing? Let's talk about it. And maybe even come up with value-based contracting that allows the opportunity for you to really focus in on that. And I think that's where we really want to push um, plans, even through our health equity accreditation, to really being thoughtful and understanding their population as a whole. And so collecting data, and one of the things that we're doing at NCQA is we're working on a social needs measure. And so even as we talked about earlier around, do you have transportation? Do you have a food? Are you food insecure? Being able to capture that within the um, EHR and actually have a metric that's linked to quality, um, I think is going to be very important as a consideration that health plans are going to start to look to providers to be like, how do we actually incorporate this into the data? And hopefully, knock, knock, this is my hope, Brian speaking, that hopefully Z codes start getting used in the future and actually are funded to actually helping provide some financial incentives to actually helping providers that want to do more robust things for their patients and the communities that they are in. And so I would say those are 
some unique ways that I think that health plans are starting to look at the data in intentional ways. I mean, yeah, those are great ideas. I like them being involved in the quality program because then there's, you know, measures of success and actionable plans and accountability and reporting that I think even provides further clarity on their mission and vision around health equity. You know, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on how compares support the same level of quality face-to-face provider interactions for all ethnicity and races. Uh, one of the things you mentioned was, you know, clinic location. Um, there's telemedicine, but how do they support that level of quality for face-to-face for all ethnicities and races? Um, so the easy way I would say is going to the Gemba. Um, so this is kind of going from a lean. See, you already knew what I was talking about. So going from a lean, you have to go and see, and this comes from lean Japanese, which means going and seeing um, and listening to others. So one of the things that I would say, whether you're a health plan, and because sometimes health plans can, to some degree, live in that ivory tower, and it's very easy to happen. And so you really have to be able to go out into the community, just as we tell our providers and to go and walk in the community. I think health plans also need to do some of those actions as well, because you really don't know until you actually see it for yourself. Oftentimes talking with providers, especially as you're building more robust data sets, if you're starting to see that there are specific gaps in care in certain communities around X, Y, Z, go make a trip to actually go exploring what is and talk to people. Um, my family's from the Caribbean and I remember my grandmother, uh, she was an educator in Antigua and often that was her way of always trying to figure out things. She was really, she taught me all I needed to know about health equity. She would do these gimbal walks in the community and she looked at making sure and checking in on people, not just are you physically okay? But how are you mentally, socially as a whole person? And so I think the more we can do more things like that, the better we are around really truly making an equitable society. I mean, I, I love the fact that you hit on, you know, mental health as well, right? Because patients with skin diseases and, and treatments and abnormalities, sometimes that can take a toll. And even some of the therapies and being compliant, you've got to stay motivated. And so, you know, checking out the patient holistically is so important. And you're right, you know, having, having a face to the clinic types and the types of patients and the way care is provided helps you make even more effective coverage determinations that can be effective for a whole population. So great example, always appreciate the Gemba Walks. Um, and, and curious, you know, in your opinion, you know, what is the biggest barrier in treatment selection in terms of health inequity? And maybe the biggest barrier of treatment selection can be skin related, but even broader from your experience. <laughs> if I had to simplify it, cost, I think money is the thing that is the biggest barrier to really an equitable society. How do we pay for it? How do we think about return on investment? How do we think about the financial investment? How do we think of the moral imperative? I think cost all comes down to cost in many ways. Because um, one of the things I guess I can say I hear from my perspective is for folks is, well, what's the return on investment? And I actually would like to reverse that to being like, what's the cost if you don't do it? And we know from some of the studies that Deloitte has come out with, um, I think they did a whole study last year, it's roughly about 320, I think, million dollars um, um, sorry, $320 billion per year is the cost of inequities. And then by 2040, it could get up to $1 trillion. And so there's also a cost in inaction, which I think I want to remind folks of, um, not just the cost of what do I need to put up front. So it's really we're investing in our communities. We're investing in what I hope is everyone's mission 
trying to provide the best possible care for the patient and their families. Awesome. Well, we're getting close to the end, but I still have one remaining question because Dr. Buckley, you're doing a lot of great work. Uh, well, with accreditation programs, getting the word out. And I think the more that we can be intentional, I remember that word from this podcast, the four P's, Gemba, you've got me a lot to think about, but you know, um, you're doing a lot, but I mm-hmm. want you really to give our um, listening audience a little bit more in terms of what are you working on to help bridge the gap in care that you are most excited to share? Um, and what does that future look like of things on the horizon and how you, your organization, others can make a direct impact? Yeah, so I've already chatted about the accreditation program, so I won't chat about that. But knowing that we're also taking an audit of all of our other accreditation programs to making sure that they are equity at the center of their design. Um, But the one program that I'm going to talk about that I'm really excited for is our work that we have some from funding from PCORI around community health workers. And so we are actually working with community health workers and seeing how we can incorporate scale up community health worker programs, both in healthcare delivery, health plans, FQHCs onward. And so hopefully that research will be coming out later this uh, year on really how do we scale these things up for organizations that are trying to figure out how do I actually make this happen. And then the last piece I would say is from our measurement work, um, we are stratifying HEDIS measures by five measures um, this uh, measurement year 2023. And then in the following year, eight additional measures and measurement year 2024. And so I'm really looking forward to what that analysis looks like. And I encourage folks, um, our public comment um, has ended, but every year, NCQA, when it comes to our HEDIS work and our measurements, uh, we do have a public comment that happens every year between February and March. And so I always encourage people to share their perspectives because we also want to hear from folks closer to the field on how our measures are actually impacting the field. Awesome, awesome. Lots of great work, hopefully more to come. This isn't the end of everything that you're doing as an organization and that we're doing as providers. And hopefully to continue to see um, an increased emphasis as we move forward, as people making decisions through healthcare um, equity lens, doing the right thing by the patient as we design a system for success across both the providers and the payers. Well, Dr. Buckley, I just want to thank you again. And also to our listening audience, we hope that you found this AJMC podcast to be rich and informative. That's all we have for today. If you missed it, please tune in to the first podcast in this series and check out our full Stakeholder Summit panel discussion titled Treating Psoriasis Across All Skin Phototypes. From all of us at AJMC, Thank you for listening to this Managed Care Cast. For more updates in managed care, be sure to visit AJMC.com and sign up for our e-newsletter. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us. Thanks again for listening.
That's all we have for today. From all of us at AGMC, thank you for listening to this Managed Carecast. Please tune in for part two of this podcast series, where we will delve further into how to incorporate race, culture, and ethnic backgrounds into treatment decisions and care. For more updates in managed care, be sure to visit AJMC.com and sign up for our e-newsletter. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us. Thanks again for listening.